0: episode of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Travote of DraftAnalyst.com, joined as usual by Mr. Tony Pauline. What's going on, Tony?
1: Not a whole heck of a lot, getting ready for the Thanksgiving holiday, so it's supposed to be uh, a little bit cold here, and we go to the the parade every morning, so that's going to be not much fun. Wasn't a crazy week on the college football schedule. Didn't see any upsets at the top of the rankings. Of course, uh, all the teams now are getting you know, ready for rivalry weekend, so you see the Floridas play the Idahos and the Georgias play the UMasses. So let's get started with our inaugural Thanksgiving edition of the Draft Analyst Podcast. It's
0: usually hard to find intriguing prospect matchups in games with monster spreads, but we just had that this past week when UMass traveled to Georgia, as you mentioned, and suffered a 66-27 loss at Sanford Stadium. But the story was Minutemen wide receiver Andy Isabella. Who went over 100 catches on the season with 15 receptions for 219 yards and two TDs against the Bulldogs' talented secondary? Obviously, those numbers are great, but what did you see from Isabella that impressed you this week on the field?
1: You know, I, I'm not surprised by Isabella's performance or the stats or the result. I've been singing this kid's praises all season long. He lacks the great physical skills. He goes about five foot nine, 190 pounds, and he runs in the four fives. But you know what? Much the same was said about a previous UMass alum victor cruz who had a lot of success in the nfl until uh, he had problems with the injuries towards the end of his career and like cruz isabella is just an instinctual football player and a tremendous receiver he uses his quickness his smarts his field vision to separate from opponents or find the soft spot in defense and consistently makes himself an open target for the quarterback he doesn't draw passes he works to pick up yardage running after the catch and he gets as much as possible from his receiving skills now, his stats were helped by a 75-yard touchdown reception late in the third quarter when the game was already out of hand in favor of Georgia, but I believe Isabella had almost eight catches by halftime. And So, you know, to be able to go into that environment and play at a high level, but despite the fact he was physically overmatched by the Bulldog secondary, who, as we said, have, has a number of top 45 picks lining up, I think that says a lot. Isabella is going to be a late-round pick, but I have no doubt he will be a productive slot receiver and potential punt returner at the next level.
0: Most of Isabella's early catches were on screens. I think he had eight catches for 43 yards or something in that range at one point. Even on those catches, though, you could see he's got some juice, and he showed the speed to get around the corner against both DeAndre Baker and J.R. Reed, two of those top 45 prospects you just mentioned, on consecutive jet sweeps. He's sturdy with the ball in his hands despite his diminutive stature, He has good upper body strength and doesn't go down easily after the catch. Isabella also showed good lower body explosiveness, which allows him to accelerate in a flash, both out of his route breaks and after the catch, to destroy the defender's pursuit angles. He's also a precise route runner, who showed the ability to track passes downfield when he got the opportunities to go deep, so it was an impressive overall showing from Isabella. Georgia knew where the ball was going on almost every play, but couldn't find a way to stop him. A more well-known prospect in a similar game script this week was Duke quarterback Daniel Jones, as the Blue Devils traveled to Clemson to face the second-ranked Tigers. Jones and the Duke offense got off to an early 6-0 lead, but failed to score a touchdown before allowing 35 unanswered points in a 29-point loss. Obviously, Jones is working with far inferior talent at Duke compared to the defense he played against Saturday, but what did you see from his on-field play, Tony? Tony?
1: You know, he just showed a great command of the offense and a great feel for what was happening on the field. Despite getting the crap beat out of him, he competed and put his team in a position to challenge in the first half. He protected the ball. He moved the offense down the field, but he just couldn't get the ball in the end zone. I mean, Duke's offensive line was at a severe disadvantage, as we highlighted last week when we previewed the game. Yet Jones was able to do some good things. If he had better skilled players, specifically better athletes, the game would have been much closer. But all too often, the Duke's skilled players were relying on their sheer guts to make plays rather than some sort of athletic advantage. They couldn't run to the deep throws. They couldn't separate from defenders. And they really couldn't pick up a lot of yardage after the catch. Overall, it was a plus game for Jones. And something that scouts as well as NFL teams are going to look at as a positive. Now, just about everyone I've spoken with tell me that Jones is very likely to enter the draft. And some people have told me the the decision has already been made and he's gone. If he enters the draft, it's a decision I completely agree with. People suggest he needs to return to Duke for another year to develop his game. But you have to ask himself, how much more is he going to gain if he returns to Duke for another season? He's got a great coach in David Cutcliffe, who has a track record of developing quarterbacks. But how much better will his supporting cast be at Duke in 2019? You know, I don't think it's going to be much better. The receivers aren't going to be able to run due his deep throws. The tackles will continue to struggle. Stopping speed rushers and the interior linemen are going to get run over by top rated opponents. I really don't see much value in Jones returning to the college field just to get the crap beat out of him and limp his way into the huddle.
0: This performance from Jones is the main reason box score scouting doesn't work. He didn't even average four yards per pass attempt, but still managed to impress me as well. Despite being harassed from all angles, he showed good pocket presence and more than enough mobility to escape pressure and can be tough to bring to the ground when he fights to escape sacks. He did a nice job moving through his progressions when he did have time, while not forcing the ball downfield, where his receivers were simply blanketed by the Clemson secondary. He throws casual passes in the short field, leads his receivers into yards-after-catch opportunities on swing passes, screens, slants, and hitches, and throws receivers open consistently. Jones also throws effectively on the move, even while rolling left, and he moved the offense very well considering the circumstances and severe talent mismatch. His receivers dropped at least five passes that hit them in the hands, even if the coverage was tight. The only negative I saw for Jones was the tendency to get passes batted down at the line of scrimmage, but much of that is a credit to guys like Christian Wilkins and Dexter Lawrence, who each knocked down several passes individually. Jones does tend to throw at the three-quarters arm angle and even drops it a bit lower when the ball needs to come out quickly, but that's a nitpick considering his overall performance in this game. Whatever development he has left to do will likely be accelerated at the NFL level compared to Duke, as long as he ends up with a team that has a solid coaching staff in place. Now another team led by an underclassman quarterback that got out to a quick start last week was Colorado against Utah. Stephen Montez and the Buffaloes took an early 7-0 lead, but gave up 30 unanswered in a second straight blowout loss, dropping them under 500 and costing coach Mike McIntyre his job. From what you saw in the three quarters Montez played before leaving with an injury, is the juniors draft outlook in similar danger?
1: You know, first of all, it was a tough situation for everyone involved in that CU program to start the season so well, then then to go into this long slide and finally get thumped at home by Utah. After the initial reports last week that McIntyre would be fired at the end of the season, you had to know the whole thing would go quickly to hell, and it did. You know, Montez had another poor game. It wasn't horrible, and the weather wasn't conducive to the passing game. But after the USC game, I think this was his worst showing of the year. With a new head coach entering the mix, Montez will have a lot of decisions to make. Will he be a good fit with the new head coach? You know, that's one of the reasons why Tanner Lee left Nebraska and entered the draft last season after such a poor year. He wasn't a good fit. He may not have been the starter at Nebraska had he stuck around what type of offense is going to be run at Colorado and is it going to help the next level development of Montez? you know one name being thrown around as a potential head coach at Colorado is present West Virginia head coach Dana Holgerson he runs an exciting offense but you know has he really developed any quarterbacks that have succeeded at the next level most people tell me Montez should return to school which is prob which is obvious to anyone who's watching the path past month and a half. Now, I've heard no updates as to where he stands, which is understandable considering the way the season has gone, but I believe the situation as to whether Montez stays at Colorado or leaves for the NFL just got a little bit more complicated after the firing of McIntyre.
0: We'll get to this week's news in just a moment, but first, please be sure to support the draft analysts by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave a rating and a review. And if you ask a question in your review, we'll do our best to answer it on the show if there's time at the end. You can also tweet us questions at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, at Draft Analyst one and at Believe underscore LA to get in touch with the show as well. Moving along here, Tony, one of your Week 12 risers this week over at DraftAnalyst.com was Jordan Love, the quarterback of the 10-1 Utah State Aggies. You mentioned Utah State as being one of the better stories in college football this season, and you mentioned Love being a top quarterback prospect for the future and one you expect to stay in school for another year. That being the case, I'm told you have some news on one of Love's favorite targets,
1: yeah, that would be tight end Dax Raymond, who I rated as a last day pick over the summer. He's a very athletic tight end who missed two games this season with injury, but nine contests, he's caught twenty-three passes for three hundred and thirteen yards. He's averaging just under fourteen yards per catch, and he also has two TDs. He's got a terrific build, he goes about six foot four, two hundred and forty-five pounds, and he plays fast. He comes from a family of track and field sprinters. His dad was a sprint and long jump champion, and his sister is also a track star in the sprint. Raymond himself, if you watch him, plays a legitimate seam stretcher who gets down the field and creates mismatches in the secondary. He's a little overage as he graduated from high school in 2012, then served a two-year Mormon mission in Russia before entering Utah State. I'm told that he's very likely to enter the draft and one of the reasons is because he's overaged. Now, the Utah State coaches are working to coax him back. But right now, Raymond is a legitimate mid-round pick in the draft if he enters, which I expect he will.
0: Speaking of speedy skill players from the Mountain West, is there any word on where Colorado State vertical threat Preston Williams will be playing next year?
1: Yeah, like Dax Raymond, I'm told Williams is, ex- is expected to enter the draft at the end of the season. He's been described to me as a physical specimen on the field, but a question mark off of it. He was a highly rated recruit out of high school who began his college career at Tennessee. That didn't work out and then Williams transferred to Colorado State. He was suspended at Colorado State due, due to an off-the-field Mr. Meter assault charge, but, that was, but he was eventually reinstated and has been playing lights out this season. 84 receptions this year for 1,097 yards with and 11 TDs, and there's still a game left on the schedule. His physical abilities are impressive as his stats, and if he enters the draft, as people are telling me he will, I would expect Williams to light up the combine and pro day workouts. The bigger issue is how he comes across during pre-draft interviews with teams.
0: In a few minutes, we'll preview the Thanksgiving Day Classic between Ole Miss and Mississippi State. But before we get to that game, there's some draft-related news coming out of Bulldogs Camp. What's up in Starkville?
1: I've been told by several people that Mississippi State defensive tackle Jeffrey Simmons will enter the draft, which should not come as a surprise to anybody. From an on-the-field perspective, Simmons fits in with the second tier of defensive tackles after Quinion Williams and Grayquan Davis of Alabama, Ed Oliver of Houston, Christian Wilkins and Dexter Lawrence of Clemson, and Derek Brown of Auburn. Based off the film, I see Simmons battling with Jerry Tillery of Notre Dame for a spot late in round one. Now, unfortunately... There are off the field issues with Simmons, which could cost him in terms of draft positioning. You know, they say the tape doesn't lie on the field, and that's true off the field as well. There's a video of him from March of 2016 where Simmons is punching a girl who's lying on the street. He pleaded no contest to simple assault in July of 2016 and ended up paying fines that totaled about $1,200. People say Simmons has been a model student. That's great to hear. I believe everyone deserves a second chance. But the fact is, is we live at a different age now. And the times have significantly changed since similar issues plagued Joe Mixon heading into the 2017 draft. I love to sit here and say people will look at the Simmons issue from 2016 as a one-off incident and select him early in the draft or late part of round one where he deserves to be selected based off of his play on the field. But I'm afraid there are some who are going to work to try and not make that happen. So we'll just have to wait and see.
0: As I alluded to before, obviously this is Thanksgiving week, but it's also rivalry week across the college football landscape. And we'll get a little taste of both when Mississippi State travels to face Old Miss on Thanksgiving night. Even without receiver D.K. Metcalf, there will be plenty of intriguing matchups when the Rebels are on offense. A.J. Brown and Demarcus Lodge have picked up the slack without Metcalf. Brown leads the SEC in receiving and is coming off a 200-yard game, while Lodge has two of his 300-yard games this season in his last two contests. That duo will face a secondary with two next-level prospects in quarterback Jamal Peters and safety Jonathan Abram.
1: You know, many people, including myself, feel A.J. Brown will be the first receiver selected in April's draft, and I'm told he's going to make himself eligible for the draft. Demarcus Lodge is graded as a potential third-rounder by scouts, though I'm not completely sold on that. The bottom line is this is power versus power. Brown and Hodge are bigger receivers who physically beat down defensive backs to come away with the receptions. Uh, I like Brown's eye-hand coordination. I like his balance. I like his focus. He goes up for passes and traffic and comes down with the ball the majority of the time when it's catchable. Lodge is a little bit more inconsistent with his focus as well as his hands and does drop some very catchable throws. You know, when I say power against power, you look at the two guys that we have spoke about in the uh, Mississippi State Secondary. Uh, Peters, we've mentioned several times in this podcast, and Abram, I just wrote about him as a Week 12 riser in my column yesterday. Peters has the computer numbers and the athleticism to start at cornerback in the NFL, and after an injury, he's slowly pulling it together. He's got great upside, and the matchup against A.J. Brown is one to really focus on. If either Ole Miss receiver comes across the middle of the field, watch out for Abram, or watch Abram, whichever you prefer. He's an explosive hitter who seems to crave contact, but at the same time, he plays smart, disciplined football. Abram's got some athletic limitations, and he's not a true center fielder, but he's exceptional between the numbers.
0: The other big matchup in this game involves tackle Greg Little, who gets an opportunity to rebound after a nondescript outing against Texas A&M's Landis Durham. they will have to do it against Montez Sweat, who's tied for second in the SEC with nine and a half sacks and is having a great senior season. Anything specific you're watching for in this matchup, Tony?
1: I'm glad you brought this one up. You know, earlier today when I taped the Journey to the Draft podcast with Fran Duffy, I mentioned that some teams... Do not grade Montez Sweat as a lock first-round pick, which is going to surprise a lot of people. There are concerns about his six-foot-six, 245-pound frame and how it's going to hold up at the next level. Regardless, Sweat is a terrific athlete and an outstanding pass rusher on the college level. Athleticism is what helped Landis exploit Greg Little when the pair faced off two Saturdays ago, and sometimes Little seems a bit hesitant and stiff in his game. Stylistically, this is a terrific matchup to watch as it pits strength against weakness. Sweat has the athleticism and quickness advantage over Little, while the old Miss tackle definitely has a size and power advantage over Sweat.
0: We also have an intriguing Friday night matchup this week when Washington State hosts Washington at Martin Stadium. Gardner Minshew leads the nation in passing yards and has thrown over 100 more passes than the next highest quarterback in this high-powered offense. He's also tied for the FBS lead with 36 touchdown passes, but he'll have a tough task on his hands against the Huskies' star-studded secondary. Tony, what are your thoughts on Minshew, and what do you want to see from him in this matchup?
1: You know, Minshew is a guy who was not graded by scouts entering the season as little was known about him. A year ago, he was not the heir apparent to Luke Falk, but the tragedy surrounding Tyler Helinski made Minshew the starter by default entering the season. Now, a lot of scouts are starting to take a long, hard look at Minshew, who has decent arm strength. He gets it between the ears and he shows a lot of moxie in his game and has really helped put Washington State in a position to contest for the Pac-12 title. It's a different type of contest against Washington, which wants to win for a variety of reasons, including state bragging rights. We've mentioned the Husky secondary a number of times on this podcast, and all five players in the defensive backfield are NFL prospects who will be playing on Sunday. Cornerback Byron Murphy is expected to enter the draft and will contend for a spot late in round one. Safety Taylor Rapp could also end up in the first frame, although I'm told he's kind of up in the air as to whether or not he's going to enter the draft. The two seniors, cornerback Jordan Miller and safety JoJo McIntosh, are both underrated prospects with a lot of next-level potential, and their nickelback junior Miles Bryant also has an NFL future. Minshew is an intriguing quarterback prospect, and needless to say, if he performs well against the talented Washington Husky secondary, he'll continue to move north on draft boards.
0: Our final rivalry week preview will take us back to the trenches when Michigan faces Ohio State on Saturday's early slate. Rashawn Gary is the first-round prospect on the Wolverines' defensive line, but Chase Winovich is an interesting late second or early third-day prospect and ranks just outside the top five in the Big Ten with 13 tackles for loss. Winovich also suffered an injury in last week's win over Indiana, but x-rays were negative, and we don't have anything official on his status just yet. Gary and potentially Winovich will face off against tackle Isaiah Prince, a first-round prospect in the eyes of many scouts. Tony, you stamped Prince with a mid-round grade before the season. Is your opinion of the tackle still well below the opinion of scouts? And what will you be watching for in this game from him?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm still not as high on Prince as a lot of other people. And like the Greg Little against Montez Sweat contest, this is going to be strength against weakness. And what do I mean? You know, as you said, Prince is graded as a potential first-round pick entering the season. He's a big, strong guy who dominates opponents once he gets his hands on them. But he shows some stiffness, and he lacks classic footwork sliding off the edge and pass protection. This is where Gary and Winovich can exploit Prince. Both have great first-step quickness, both can rush the edge with speed, and both are agile athletes. Prince has a size and strength advantage on both, but should either Gary or Winovich, assuming that the latter plays gets the first step on Prince. Will he be able to recover? Will he be able to adjust? Will he be able to protect his quarterback?
0: Now, Tony, late last week, Dolphins fans were going back and forth on Twitter after our report that Executive VP of Football Operations, Mike Tenenbaum, flew to the Oregon-Utah game to personally scout quarterback Justin Herbert and that he's the player the franchise is targeting at this early stage. The Dolphins fan who follows us made a sarcastic comment saying he remembered the last time Miami made a big move up draft boards to select a player from Oregon. He was referring to Dion Jordan, the third pick of the 2013 NFL Draft, who's turned out to be a monumental bust in the NFL. You responded by saying you had a great story about the moment Jordan was selected by the Dolphins, and you mentioned you it on the podcast. So, Tony, it's time to put your money where your mouth is.
1: Uh, first, a little perspective. Uh, I actually attended every draft... Well, it was in New York from 1986 until the final draft, which may have been 2014, 2015, before it left for Chicago. So I was at everyone either observing or working or observing while I worked. Now, the 2013, and this dates back to when it was at the Marriott Marquis, and then it was at the theater at Madison Square Garden. One year, it was at the Jacob Javits Center. And then it finally, finally ended up at Radio City Music Hall, which was kind of ironic Or bizarre, maybe, because you got the Rockets, you got all these classic shows there, and then you got the NFL draft there. Now, 2013 was one of the first years where the NFL really turned it from a media event into a fan event. What do I mean? For years and years, what would happen is the press would sit right behind the team tables. You see those team tables where they got the team helmet on there and they're getting the uh, the orders from, from the war room as to what player they're going to take. Well, right behind them, used to we used to sit in the press and it used to be the whole section. And at Radio City, the fans, we used to sit upstairs in, sec- in the 200 and 300 section. What they did in 2013 was they actually moved the press up to, I think it was the 300 section. And they let the fans sit down on the main level. So it had a completely different vibe. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was raucous. I remember standing there watching it, and the NFL people were concerned because the fire marshals in New York City were going to shut the draft down because there were fans in the aisles, and, and the fire marshals wanted the aisles clear. I mean, it was just a lot of fun. That was a Johnny Manziel year as well. What happened was I was working with the Philadelphia Eagles, the website, uh, PhiladelphiaEagles.com, and the Eagles had the fourth pick of the draft. And I was there with my buddy Chris McPherson, who's worked with uh, Philadelphia Eagles, uh, the media side, for about 10, 12 years now. And what happened was we were off to the side. We were waiting for the Eagles to make their pick. The Oakland, I think it was the Oakland Raiders were called to the clock with the ser- third selection of the draft. And to the left of where we were standing, in one section, in one area of the section, the first four or five rows was Lane Johnson's family. Right next to Lane Johnson's family in the next section, four or five rows was Deion Jordan's family. And they're all watching with anticipation because they know that both of their players, families, friends of Deion Jordan, families, friends of Lane Johnson, both of those guys are going to go early. They just don't know how early. So all of a sudden, Roger Goodell steps to the podium and says, We have a trade. The Miami Dolphins are on the clock. And Lane Johnson's family explodes. They're going crazy. They're high-fiving each other. They're hugging each other. They're screaming and yelling. They figure they're all set. The Miami Dolphins are going to take Lane Johnson. Everybody in that area, in the, in the Radio City Music Hall, thought the Dolphins were going to take Lane Johnson. And Dion Jordan's family and friends are sitting right next to Lane Johnson's family, and they're watching this, and they're quiet, and their mouths are open. And it's like somebody said to them, hey, you just won $10 million in the lottery, and then came back and said, oh, I'm sorry, we, we had the wrong numbers, you didn't win. And they're watching this, and Lane Johnson's family's going crazy. Then Roger Goodell steps to the podium, and he says, with the third pick of the draft, the Miami Dolphins select Deion Jordan. And it was the exact opposite. All of a sudden, Deion Jordan's family, they're doing backflips. They're going crazy. They're hugging each other. And Lane Johnson's family, it's like somebody just took all the air out of the balloon. Their jaws dropped. They couldn't believe it. Everybody thought that Lane Johnson was going to go to the Miami Dolphins except the Miami Dolphins war room who took Deion Jordan. Funny story was uh, my buddy Chris McPherson was upset because he wanted the Philadelphia Eagles to take Deion Jordan. And I said to him, uh, I said to him, don't worry. I said, you got the better player of the bunch. And Lane Johnson has been one of the few players of that 2013 draft, especially in the first round that's ever lived up to expectations.
0: Yeah, and in the end, it does seem like it worked out just fine for the Eagles there. It worked out just fine for Lane Johnson, who has a Super Bowl ring. Feels like the only people it didn't work out for was Deion Jordan and the Miami Dolphins. So hopefully, if Miami does make a move up the board again this year, there's no repeat of that scenario. And that's it for episode number five of the Draft Analysts, presented by the Belize Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you like what you hear... Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to send us questions to answer on the show via Twitter or review as well. And as always, head over to draftanalyst.com for all the latest draft news and analysis. For Tony Pauline, I'm Chris Trapody,
1: and we hope you all have a happy Thanksgiving. See you next week.